Well, yeah, Danny, we've been in the studies of Daniel. There's all these great stories, right? If you remember, if you grew up in the church, these are the ones that grab your, your imagination of like Daniel in the lion's den. And what we're going to read today of Shadrach, Meshach, and, and as it's been said, to bed we go, or Abednego, <laughs> uh, and the fiery furnace. And you know, just great stories of courage and faithfulness that are here to inspire us, to train us, to figure out how to follow Jesus when, when things get hard. And so last week we saw Daniel go through that, right? His life was on the line, that the king had a dream, and he said, tell me the dream and what it means, or all you and your people, your, your co-workers, all these wise men are going to die. And God miraculously communicated from heaven to earth and gave the content of the dream and the interpretation Right? So Nebuchadnezzar's learning there is a God who cares about him and his life and who communicates from heaven. And today we're gonna Nebuchadnezzar is gonna learn something about God's power to save people. Right? Heaven does things here on earth. Uh, God God intervenes in our lives, in our minds, in our hearts. And so Daniel's gonna be mysteriously absent, right? He's not the only faithful one. I think that's why he's gone. He's not a heartless friend. <laughs> he is elsewhere in the background. Uh so we get to read this great story about the fiery furnace. So this is part one. We'll, we'll spend two weeks looking at this chapter. But let's read it. It's, this is God's word. It'll be projected behind me. Um, it is true and trustworthy. It says, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth six cubits. So that's about 90 feet high. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the people heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a fiery furnace. There are certain Jews you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods 
or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you're ready when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace, heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. And he answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace, and he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. And then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not any power over the bodies of these men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him, and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own God. Therefore, I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins. So there's no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. It's God's word. It is true and trustworthy. Uh, God is communicating to us today in his love. Let's pray. Our Father, our, our great God, um, who is able to deliver from the fiery furnace, we ask that you would use this passage, this, the lives of these men, to cause us to love you with all of our heart, our, our soul, our mind, and strength, and, and that we too might be faithful in, in our trials and difficulties, um, that we might be strong and courageous, believing your promises that you are with us in Christ. So yeah, Lord, I pray that your grace that we see today uh, would move us to follow Jesus, take up our cross, and be willing to maybe even suffer for your sake, should you call us to do so, but to trust you even when we don't know what is happening. We pray this in Christ's name.
Amen. So bold defiance, uh, courage. We love these kind of stories. These are the, the stories that Hollywood makes millions and billions of dollars off of. Right? What, what's your favorite story of defiance? Someone who stands up weak uh, against the, the mighty, the, you know, the, the proverbial David against the Goliath. I mean, every few years there's a film about standing up to the evils of Nazi Germany, right? taking a lone stand at great risk to themselves. Some of you might remember Rosa Parks, right? refusing to be treated as less than human. So she did not move to the back of the bus. Or you can picture, I did a bunch of historical studies this, year, this week, right? The, the, Tian, the man at Tiananmen Square in China. One man alone against the powers, st- standing in front of a line of tanks. Right? Great courage in the midst of defiance. You know, for followers of Jesus, for uh, Jews, uh, for For countless years, this speech to Nebuchadnezzar functions that way. It inspires courage with the the heat of the flames threatening. I mean, I imagine that they could at least see it, if not feel the flames on their face. They said, we don't need to defend ourselves. Our God is able to defend us. But if not, we will not bow down to your gods or worship the image you have set up. Go and do likewise. (laughs) Right? And that's, that's what happens, right? Nebuchadnezzar is shown a God who rescues. This, this is a supernatural story that God doesn't leave his people alone in trouble, uh, that he's able to protect them. Um, that's the obvious part of this story, and we'll talk more about that next week. But there's another miracle in this story that often gets overlooked, and so I want to spend some time thinking about that. But we've got to dive into the story to see what it is. You know, it's, it's, it's a miracle. It, it's surprising when you, when you see it. So let's, let's jump in. Let's first look at this high-maintenance king, Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar that's what we're going to call him. A high-maintenance king, right? So King Nebuchadnezzar, what he does is he sets up this image of gold. Um, you know, uses cubits to describe it. That's, it's either gold-plated or maybe it's solid gold. We don't really know. But it's 90 foot high, 9 foot wide. It's on a plane, so it's flat ground. So this thing would be obvious from, from afar. I mean, if, I don't know if you know how high 90 feet is. It's at least taller than, than our steeple. Right? This is a massive feat of engineering, much less <laughs> wealth and glory and, and impressive. It's an impressive statue. Right? Another important detail, this statue is most likely uh, an image of Nebuchadnezzar the king. Right? Because they keep separating the image and the gods. It's as if they're two different things. Right? If you look at verse 14, the power and majesty and the glory of this king is equated with the image. Right? You're not going to serve my gods or worship the image that I have set up. <laughs> he takes this very personally. And so, right? you sh- your alarm bell should be ringing. This guy's ego is pretty big. It's pretty large. He's demanding to be adored to be treated as larger than life, to be treated like God on earth. Right? He's, he's setting himself up at the center of some kind of cult worship practice for, all, for the whole world. Right? So modern equivalent, right? If you came into my office and saw a wall-to-ceiling portrait of myself, 
you're, you're going to say, yeah, that's weird. There's something wrong with that guy's ego. Pride's lurking. Right? And that's, that's what, we, what we see with Nebuchadnezzar, and then he's going to then teach us about ourselves. Um, why does he set up this image? Why would he do something so audacious, uh, so, to us, obviously arrogant and, and ridiculous? Uh, and what's helpful is to don't disconnect this story in chapter 3 from chapter 2. Uh, it's all the same story. Right? Because you remember Nebuchadnezzar's dream where he saw this massive human figure with a head of gold. And he was told that head of gold is yourself. It's you. Dazzling and terrifying in appearance. Right? And we looked at this last week. The whole point of the dream was, Nebuchadnezzar, there is a God, and you are not him. Everything you have is a gift from this God. And God, this is what he's up to in history. He's setting up a kingdom that will destroy all the earthly powers. So he's going to show himself stronger than the kingdoms of this world. And it's symbolized by this stone that becomes a mountain that fills the earth. And it's a whole bunch of poetic images that, that we know as Christians. It's a, it's a dream about Jesus setting up his kingdom. Uh, it's going to fill the world. And we talked about that last week. And so if you can picture this, right? Nebuchadnezzar, here's this dream. It's not about you. It's about Jesus. Chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar responds. We don't know how much time has passed. I mean, functionally, it sounds like he's responding. He says, so God, I hear you saying this is about me. (laughs) Right? He he builds this massive statue of himself, clearly forgetting everything he said at the end of chapter 2, giving praise to God for being the God who communicates. He's quick to forget. And that's what happens then. He wants this to be a global thing, a unifying thing for his kingdom. That's what's so repetitive. It's really awkward to read out loud because it's so repetitive. We'll talk about that next week. But they're all commanded to bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's greatness. And, and how you understand this, this is just some Bible knowledge and how you connect the dots, kind of help tell you what the, 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 the narrator wants you to see. They want you to connect Nebuchadnezzar's ego to the Tower of Babel. They want you to connect his, his destructive pride to Genesis 11. Here's a clue. Um, it's built on the plains of Dura in the province of Babylon. Right? And we already saw in chapter 1, it's in the land of Shinar, which is another name for Babel. Um, Bible nerds have noticed the comparison, right? It's the same place, it's a plain, it's a massive thing that brings all peoples together. Right? And so if you're reading Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel, Nebuchadnezzar is repeating the same mistakes. Right? This is their motivation for building this massive tower to reach to the heavens, they say in Genesis 11. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Right? They, they want to make a name for themselves. They want to be seen. They want, their, they want their name to be famous, right? That we've done something, that our life has meaning and purpose. But it comes from us, right? So when you layer that story onto what Nebuchadnezzar's doing here, right? Nebuchadnezzar wants his name to be known, feared, adored, He wants what every human being has wanted since Genesis 3. He wants the world to revolve around him. 
so that people would say, look at that guy. He's great. Praise him. He's amazing. Right? He wants people to rise up and, and applaud. Right? This is a high-maintenance king. <laughs> and just so you don't miss the size of Nebuchadnezzar's ego, you heard it ten times. This is the image that Nebuchadnezzar has set up. In case you missed the message, this is about him. He did it. He wants your attention. So what you're seeing, that there's two ways to live. Right? And this is the, the way that human beings function. This is the way I live. Right? Nebuchadnezzar has built a, a culture, a kingdom, with himself at the center. And it's built on pride. It's all about me. It's all about me. And this is where it gets very practical. Because my pride wants to say, yeah, that Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar guy, he's nuts. He's not like me at all. But that's, that's not why this is in here. This is a message for the whole world that you might learn and follow Nebuchadnezzar as he interacts with the God of heaven, that we might learn from what God teaches him. Right? So there's a couple things, two things you can learn from, about ourselves, because though his sin is different in magnitude, right? most of us don't have 90 foot, I've been to most of your homes, I haven't seen a statue of yourself <laughs> outside of your house. Um, it's not a command, right? So... No, we're, we're learning that he's human like us, and power addictions and pride and control continue to haunt us. It's human, right? So first, what, first thing you see, right? Didn't Nebuchadnezzar learn something last chapter? <laughs> Didn't he praise God out loud? Didn't he say, your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings and the revealer of mysteries? Isn't your God great? Right? In chapter 3, what it does is shows us that well, as humans, we're quick to forget. Because that message that, that Nebuchadnezzar received, that God is God and, and he is not, just bounces off his stony heart. Right? He's not changed. He has an interaction with God, right? God shows him a little bit of his greatness, but that interaction didn't change him for the long term. Right? He was impressed by power, but he wasn't transformed. And this is what he does, just like all of us. He circles back to the patterns, the habits, the things that he had, he's always done. It's all about me. Right? And so this is where I, th I think this is really helpful. Nebuchadnezzar, like all of us, whether you're a Christian or not, uh, trying to figure these things out or not, we need repeated experiences with the gospel. We need repeated experiences with God him telling us who he is and what he's like and what we ought to do. Because, like Nebuchadnezzar, we're, we forget. I forget. Right? Today, you're going to hear and have heard, uh, Brandon said it at least, whether we heard it or not, <laughs> all is forgiven in Christ at the cross. God is gracious and sovereign. But by Wednesday, after you've blown it again, shame is lurking. Right, we've gone back to our, our habits that are, are not helpful. And we want someone to cheer for us again. Because we forget. Right? See, there's a dynamic in Nebuchadnezzar's heart that's like my heart, that as he sees bits and pieces, he needs, to, he needs repeated experiences. It takes years from chapter 2 to chapter 4, as we're going to learn from him. For him to finally say, this is the God of heaven and I want other people to know him. Look at what he's done in my life. It takes time. 
Right? The New Testament says the same thing. Uh, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13 says, exhort every, each other every day right? so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Right? Every day you need a community of people telling you who God is and what he's doing in the world because we're prone to forget. Right? We follow Jesus together, not alone. Right? I mean, you come to church every week. You notice, you'll notice the repetition. We repeat things every week. I do that intentionally because those are, we're, we're hearing God speak to us. Um, we take communion every month. It's that place where Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me because he knows our hearts. We need to do this in remembrance of him because we'll forget. We forget who we are. Uh, we're, we're, we're always doing battle with our power addictions and pride. And that brings us into confrontation with Jesus who shows us that he is the center of the universe. Remember me. Right? John Owen, the great pastor from the 1600s, illustrates what's going on in Nebuchadnezzar's heart here really well. He tells this story about a, a traveler who was on his way outside, right? This is 1600s, so someone on horseback. And a violent and terrifying thunderstorm comes up and he does what every reasonable person would do. He freaks out and runs for shelter. Right? But it doesn't change where he's going and what he's doing. As soon as the storm is over, he goes back on his, on his way. And John Owen um, says, you know what? That's what it's like with people in bondage to their own pride, enslaved to their own self-centeredness. Because we're on the road doing whatever we want, and then all of a sudden you meet the law of God where God says there's a whole different way to live. And it's terrifying. You realize for the first time, I'm going to be held accountable for the things that I do. That I, I fall short of his command to love God and love my neighbor. And it freaks us out. So for a season, you take shelter with God, you get religious, you pray for a time, try out church, we get religion. But there's a way to process that where you're just scared of the consequences. You're just freaked out by God's justice. And so Owen asks, is their course stopped? Are their lives changed? Are their core beliefs being transformed? He says, no, as soon as the storm is over, as soon as the glimpse of fear fades, back to doing what they were doing before. So what Daniel chapter 2 and that transition to Daniel chapter 3 are showing us in story form is that fear doesn't change your heart. It doesn't change my heart. It never transforms you from the inside out the way the gospel does. Right? Everybody, right? If you've been a parent, right? Everybody sees this. You're doing your own thing as a kid, and then mom looks at you. Every mom has that look, and the kid goes, right? You straighten up because you're being watched. Fear changes you for a moment. But when mom and dad aren't watching, they're doing what they want. Right. See, fear doesn't change our motives. It doesn't move us to love God with a, a, a commitment level that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have. Nebuchadnezzar was unchanged because he saw God's power, but he wasn't transformed. So, what do you do with that? Um, it, it is a warning. Right? Don't, don't let yourself be deceived. Don't be so 
proud and, and confident that you will, can't fall. Don't underestimate the hardness of your own heart and our need to remind ourselves of who God is, of who Jesus is, and our need for a community to walk alongside us. It's my counsel. You and I need multiple experiences and interaction with God, his promises. Um, As I tell people, you need more than one date to figure out who Jesus is, right? You can't just have one conversation and say, oh, I don't like him. You can't get to know anyone after one conversation. In the same way, Nebuchadnezzar needs repeated experiences to get to know who this God is. And if Christians, right, if Christians need to to use the gospel every day to beat down their own pride, what about non-Christians, people who haven't yet met him? That's why I really appreciate Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, he's airing his own dirty laundry here in the sense of making his own hard-heartedness known to the world. That's part of the gift. But what, what does kill our pride? Well, this is where we're going to move to the New Testament for a second. You've got to be able to own it. Uh, when you're humbled by our sin, as Tim Keller says, when you get filled with the knowledge of God's love, that he would love you even as a stubborn, hard-hearted, <laughs> I want everyone to revolve around me kind of ego, when you realize he loves you and died for you when you were like that, that moves you to obey for a completely different reason. Right? There is no fear in love. The lo- God is love, and his love casts out fear. We start to obey out of gratitude and confidence in who he is. See, Christianity, following Jesus, it's a religion of grace. And all of the commands then, whatever he tells you to do, even if you're in the place like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to sacrifice, you do it out of gratitude. It's a response to God's generosity. Now, that's the first thing you can learn from Nebuchadnezzar. He didn't have a category. Nebuchadnezzar did not have a category for this kind of humility of someone who would love God when it actually brought harm to themselves, when he didn't get a benefit out of it. Right? That they would just love out of sheer gratitude in response to who God is. Are you? Right? Are you that confident in God's commendation that you're willing to lose for his sake? We're forgetful, so we need to hear the gospel. Here's, here's one more cool connection, and, and it's something that's really important that you can learn about community. If you look at Nebuchadnezzar's wise men, these astrologers, they're Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's co-workers, they're pretty much like small images of Nebuchadnezzar, right? Controlled by pride, controlled by ego, controlled by jealousy. If you look at verse 8, it says, right, this thing has been built, the whole world's there gathered to, to worship Nebuchadnezzar. In verse 8, it says, at that time, the Chaldeans came forward, and maliciously accused the Jews. And the actual language there is, it's a good idiom, a visual picture of what's happening. It says that they, they're taking pieces of flesh out of them with their words. Right? It's, it's pretty graphic. It's, it's like a lion nipping at a gazelle and taking chunks of flesh in the courtroom. Right? So that, this is what slander feels like. It feels like someone... It's coming after you and taking away chunks of flesh. It hurts. 
They're acting like animals. Right? And so here's what I think I was blown away by is you got this irony. King Nebuchadnezzar says, I want the whole world to revolve around me. We're going to be unified. We're all going to get along. But it's all based on pride. And his own people despise diversity. It goes after the Jews for their ethnicity and their faith. There's no grace. There's nothing to kill the pride, the competition. And so, right, these guys are quick to forget, just to reinforce that point. Daniel and his friends saved their lives in chapter, in chapter 2. The whole reason they're still alive, and now they're out to get them. But here's what I want us to see, and it, it's, it's really helpful to think about what Nebuchadnezzar's doing and what the kingdom of God does differently. It's a different foundation. Right? When pride invades a community, you often see it in various forms of prejudice. That, that's what we've seen all, talked about a lot in our culture this year. But without grace, true community where you have people who are very different coming together uh, to actually want to be unified, to love each other even when it hurts, um, that's impossible. Not if it's built on pride like Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. I was helped by a guy named Miroslav Vlof. He's a, he both, he's a Croatian. Um, he grew up under a totalitarian government in, in uh, Eastern Europe. And so when he reads the stories of Babel and Babylon, he, he's experienced some of this, like, you better be like us or you will be killed. Right? And he says, if you were a part of the old Romania, if you were part of a totalitarian regime, that looks at all the diversity out there and said, we're not several races, we're not several language groups, we're all now going to speak one language, we're all going to be one cultural group. Right? He says that's totalitarian, that's racism, and that's what you see happening at Babel. Right? We don't want to spread out and be different. We want to be one to where we squash our differences. Right? And in, in Babylon, it's saying we don't want... We don't want to make room for your faith at all. You have to believe like us. Worship like us. Which is pretty fascinating. Because you can see this. In Babylon, there's an effort to make this diverse kingdom come together. But because it's built on pride and power and threat and fear, there's no room for difference. When you get to the end of the Bible... You get a different picture, don't you? Here's Revelation 5. And they sing in this about Jesus when they say, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals because you, Jesus, were slain and by your blood ransomed people for God from every tribe, tongue, and nation. The same language as Daniel. And you made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might, honor and glory and blessing. I'm trying to show the contrast here. What draws you and I, what changes the heart, it's not going to be power, pride, and fear. It's humility, love, and weakness. Right? In Revelation, you see Jesus, the lion, this, this picture of a powerful person who came down in humility as a lamb to 
take away the sin of the world on the cross. Right? And that's what draws people from all over the world to say, if he would love me like that, I'm willing to partner with people who are different. And if there are people who do not yet know this God, I'm going to make room for them. Because that's how to love my neighbor as myself. <laughs> See, it turns out, two things, right? Sin makes all of us high maintenance. It's all about me. But grace starts to consider others as more significant than ourselves. Right? Sets up a kingdom that's different because the foundation is humility. The foundation is sacrifice. The foundation is a way of life where I don't say, what can I get from you? I say, God's given me much. What can I give to serve you? Now, so that's big picture Nebuchadnezzar. Let's look at the faith of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego because they really are like lambs among lions in Babylon. They're being devoured piece by piece by slander, by rage, by injustice. Um, ugh. So, politics hasn't really changed, has it, <laughs> in 3,000 years. Right? Their character is assassinated. O king, these Jews don't pay any attention to you. If you know the bigger story, they're sent there to work for the peace of that king and his kingdom. Right? They're, they're there to be the best citizens of the Babylon. And they're, they're accused of being enemies. And so here's what's so amazing. Right? If you've got Nebuchadnezzar, who's quick to forget. You've got the contrast of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who are just quietly loyal to their God. Courageously loyal. And so if you're going to we're in this situation now um, where they have to take a stand for their faith. Look at their character. I mean, do you find it how quiet they are in their protest? Right? When the command goes out, that you don't find them picketing and saying this is unfair. It's not brought into the public until someone else accuses them. They're just quietly and faithfully serving in the background. Right? And you and I know this, we've seen this this year. Many Christians today would be absolutely livid if insert current president says it's all about me. <laughs> Never happened before. Right? And they start making commands affecting worship and bow down, right? We would start complaining that violates church and state. The government has no business. We go public, we sue, we get the Supreme Court involved, and we use power to try and legislate our faith. And what I was impressed by is their quiet, loyal love to God in the background. They do take a stand, and we're going to talk about that in a second. But don't make, mistake their quietness for fear. Right? They say, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, when they're called in, we don't need to defend ourselves. But even on the witness stand, on trial for their lives, they don't feel the need to tell Babel, uh, Nebuchadnezzar his evils, everything that's wrong. They don't arrogantly dismiss him. They aren't flinging insults at him, right? They're not going out in a, in a ball of fire going out on top. They're quiet. Right? So even their civil disobedience, right? and there is a place for that in the Christian faith, even as they say, we're not going to obey your command, Nebuchadnezzar, that boldness is mixed with humility. And there is a place, right? We must obey the commandments of God 
rather than men. That's Acts. And there may come a day when we have to make that decision. God's commands are the government's commands. I don't know when that will be. I hope not in our lifetime. Brothers and sisters all across the world do have to make that decision. But their goal, right, they just want to be able to quietly serve. Just bask in their lack of defensiveness. They're secure knowing God is with them, even while surrounded by the nipping wolves at their heels, so to speak. God's commendation is enough. And that's, they're not willing to jump into the politics. That's why Sinclair Ferguson would point out, um, people of faith don't have this psychological need to make a big deal of their heroism, to get everyone else to say, look at me. You know, there's an irony there, setting up a golden image to get everyone to look at us. No, Hebrews 11 says what's happened, summarizes quite well. By faith they quenched the flames of fire, they suffered, But really what they got and what they leaned into was the commendation they got from their God, the praise. That was enough. And it took away their defensiveness, their orneriness, their crankiness. And So if you want to think about that, I think we can take away that loyalty to God will be public. It is public. But it's not meant to be defensive. They're also courageous. Right? Respectfully courageous. Um, they're not insulting. I mean, I came across a very crude historical letter, right? They're about, their lives are on the line. They're being commanded, obey us or die. And this week when I was looking for good illustrations, I came across one, then I realized I could never read it from the pulpit because this is being recorded and I'd probably get fired, right? But like, there's a historical event. The Ottoman Turks are coming in and they say to the Ukrainian uh, Cossacks, just a whole group of people and say, submit and surrender to me because I'm the center of the universe. And their letter starts with, well, Sultan, you're related to the devil. And it ends with uh, some crude, your mom insults. And they basically say, no, we're not going to do what you say. When you read this text, they just say, okay, we don't need to defend ourselves. There is a God. We're going to trust him. And if you're saying that doesn't feel strong enough, it doesn't feel bold enough or loud enough, I mean, what they're doing is following a familiar path. They're choosing to submit to the Father's will, to God's will, to be oppressed, to be afflicted, to not open their mouths, to be led like a lamb to the slaughter. As a sheep is silent before the shearers, so he did not open his mouth, right? I'm reading Isaiah 53, which is about Jesus. Jesus, the truly innocent one. While the animals tear him apart in the courtroom, so to speak. He's silent. He doesn't defend himself. He's completely confident in the presence of hostility. Isaiah 53.10, it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. Though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offering, offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hands. Right? Jesus submits to God's plan to suffer, and he does so silently. 
Why? So that we would have that promise, that assurance that God will be with us in suffering. So don't equate silence to weakness. Don't put silence and say it's cowardice. This is, this is an act of faith where they wisely do not, do not arrogantly assume that they know what God wants to do with their lives. They just say, come what may, I'm trusting God. He is able, but if he doesn't, I trust him anyway. And that's, that's the real miracle that I, we started talking about, the miracle that they would trust and know God like that. And that's the question to us. Right? They're willing to choose the path of the, the way of the cross, the path of weakness, because they know the one true living God. They're confident God is able, but they're able to let God be God without any kind of ma- manipulation. It's not for the benefits. This is no prosperity gospel. Um, they really do, or I could put it this way, they, they give you a pattern, right? They're willing to cross from life into death to let God do what he's going to do. And what God does is he walks with them through death, and then he exalts them after they pass the test, which is exactly what happens to Jesus who in humility did not consider equality with God something to hold on to, came from heaven to earth to serve, to be obedient, to death on a cross. And then it says, therefore, God exalted him to the name that is above every name. It's the same pattern. They're on a holy ground, paving the way so you could see what Jesus was going to do. So do you know God like that? Who, Who isn't safe? You don't know what he's going to do. You don't know his plan. Other than he is with you, he has forgiven you, and he will carry you home. Oftentimes that involves, well, trust. I love the image from Narnia, from the silver chair. of This young girl, Jill, gets transported to Narnia, this this, uh, mythical land, and she discovers a stream in her thirst, and she gets a glimpse of this God figure, Jesus, uh, the lion. Right? She sees the stream, and it says, though the sight of water made her feel ten times thirstier than before, she didn't run forward and drink because she had a very good reason. On, right next to the stream was a lion. And then the lion said, if you're thirsty, you may drink. Are you not thirsty? And she says, I'm dying of thirst. Well, drink, said the lion. And she's afraid. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I come? Right? That's not the fear when you come to God. Are you going to change me? What are you going to do to me? And the lion says, I make no promise. But she's so thirsty, she has to draw near. Do you eat girls? She asked. <laughs> I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, says the lion. And he didn't say it as if he were boasting, he was, nor as if it were sorry or angry. He just said it. This is who he is. Will you promise not to do anything if I come? I make no promise. Well, then I'm not coming, she said. Well, then you, can, then you will die of thirst. <laughs> oh, dear, said Jill, coming another step near. I suppose I must go and look for another stream. There is no other stream, said the lion. <laughs> See, the promise is if you get to know this God, this Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah, He's not safe. He swallows up kings and kingdoms, boys and girls. He changes you. 
but into a person like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Loyal, quiet, courageous, a person of faith. And that's what they trusted. They knew the character of the lion. (laughs) They knew the character of the God who promised to be with them. And that's the miracle, that they knew it that well and were confident enough to trust him. What they trusted in the flames was not an agenda. They weren't looking for a payout at the end. It was just the blessing of God himself. This is the miracle of their public witness. They say, we defy you, Nebuchadnezzar. Not because we know God will save us. We don't. But God is God and you are not. And that's enough. Let me bring this to a close. This is the miracle of faith. (laughs) It is a miracle. As you get to know the God you can't see, he, he communicates to you. He shows you Jesus. That's how you get to know who God is. Right? That's the stream you have to come to. But think about it this way. How many times have you prayed, God, if you will just do this and answer this prayer, then I'll know you're real. Right? If you will deliver me out of these circumstances, then I'll trust you. Right? Or maybe you're, you've, you've been taught and trained by the popular belief that if God is on my side, I won't suffer which makes this year really hard. Yeah. Right? Or maybe, I mean, there's a whole tradition of seeing the scriptures and you say, faith is like a muscle. You just got to say, I believe over and over again. And if I believe, God has to answer my prayer because he respects and responds to my faith. Right? I mean, I say those in three different ways because it's an awful lot like setting yourself up at the center of the universe getting God to serve you at your command. Now, the beauty of this passage is you have faithful followers together who say to God, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I don't know what's going to happen, but I trust you because you're that good. So where do you get that confidence? Well, it's faith. And faith means trusting in God and his promises And we read some of those promises. I will be with you in the flames, it says in Isaiah. Faith doesn't mean you know why things are happening. It doesn't mean you understand in the midst of the darkness exactly what's going on. It means I'm willing to follow wherever you lead. I trust you. And faith, this is what it's forming you into, a person who's willing to follow in the footsteps of Jesus to share in his sufferings. to say no to ourselves, for God's sake. Faith joins you in relationship with the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who promises to be with you. (laughs) The second thing you need is repetition. That's what we learned, right? It is a bit like working out. Faith grows by being tested. For Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, it just wasn't like, Um, A lightning bolt from heaven all of a sudden made them strong. This was a lifelong pattern of trusting God, seeing him deliver, trusting God, seeing him help. God's past grace empowered them to trust him to have present grace for that day. Their faith was forged in previous fires before they ever got here. Being dragged through the desert, going through a whole new world, 
figuring out how to follow God when no one else was. It's what we sing. It's God's grace that has carried me thus far, and his grace will carry me home. But as you trust, learn to trust the grace in the past, it's equipping you to trust his grace today and then tomorrow and then the next day. But it's repetition, experiences with God and with his word and with his people that shapes and molds your faith. And that's the last thing here. You get this confidence through faith, through repetition, through remembering repeatedly. The God whom we serve, the God who Nebuchadnezzar saw, is a God who is able to deliver. You remember Jesus, who God delivered from death itself, whose body was broken for us, who was this Jesus who was faithful in the flames of God's judgment on the cross in order to forgive us every sin. And when you remember Jesus and see that picture, you see his love. Well, that's, what, that's where it shines brightest, in the midst of the fires of hell that he went through, in our place. And, and it's through that sacrifice that he's there so that not a hair on our head would be singed, so to speak. That's where you get that assurance that nothing, not even death itself, can separate us from God's love. Because look at what God did to Jesus. He raised him from the dead. It's through faith, it's through repetition, it's through repeated remembering the ordinary means of grace of just coming to church, talking to other Christians, reading the scriptures that forms you into this person who is very confident, but the power is not your own. It's a gift. See, both Nebuchadnezzar and this through these three friends show us that we need more than one interaction with the gospel. You need more than one interaction with God's presence and power but the beauty of the promise, right, is the goodness and mercy that was there for uh, these three friends, right, that is also assured to follow us all the days of our lives. It's enough to keep coming back, and I hope you do so. So trust the one who is with you in the flames so that you may be strong and courageous because the Lord Jesus is with you in trouble. Let's pray. Uh, Father God, we got a beautiful picture of faith, and I pray that uh, as we see you working, um, that it would change our hearts, that we wouldn't be moved by fear of your judgment, we would be moved by the power of your love to serve us at great cost to yourself, your son Jesus. Um, May Hope Church be a community of faith like, well, it's like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're always mentioned together and not alone. A community of friends who are faithfully following Jesus together, rejoicing in grace, but also asking for help to live lives of gratitude. So we pray all these things that you would empower us to be witnesses of the power of the resurrection. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.